Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be with you guys this morning. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Danny. I get to serve here as one of the pastors, not one you typically see on a Sunday morning, uh, but due to the recent babies that have been showing up, um, I have been asked to uh, uh, take this Sunday, and so I'm more than happy to do so, um, and I appreciate the grace you guys will bestow upon me. <laughs> but uh, I haven't heard yet. I don't think the Schultz had their baby yesterday, um, but uh, just be praying for that process uh, with Monica and Ross as they anticipate the arrival of their little one. But excited to meet Lucy. Haven't met her yet, and so that'll be super cool to see uh, Justin and Jill as new parents. Well, this morning we are in Acts 12, and um, it's a little bit shorter passage than what we looked at last week, which I am grateful for. Uh, but there's a couple things uh, that I really wanted to focus on this morning. But before uh, we start, you guys can open up there. We'll read the whole passage together here in a moment. Um, so as you get ready for that, my daughter, Eliza, uh, she's almost two. She'll be two next month, which will be really exciting. She loves to read books. Uh, eat blueberries, sing, dance, laugh, and sleep. I was curious if she was going to uh, be here for the start of the service because she loves to scream out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. You know, so we did a couple weeks ago, which was super fun. <laughs> I, I don't really, it doesn't really bother me. It's super funny. But um, so many of us know the wonderful treasure it is to watch uh, our child learn and grow into their unique personalities and character qualities. Um, Along with all those cute and funny characteristics, there is also a side of her that comes out all too quickly when she isn't receiving the things or the attention she believes that she deserves. In a desperate attempt to recover my attention in those situations, she will often grab my chin, turn my face towards her, and just stare at me with this incredibly piercing stare uh, that uh, <laughs> really... Um, uh, this, this stare right here. <laughs> and I lose the ability to withhold my laughter, which she then perceives as a positive thing. And um, so she thinks I'm affirming her actions by grabbing my face and turning it towards her. Um, so she grins, feeling good about this decision. And I have no idea where she gets it from. <laughs> but... I realize now I made a mistake by teaching her that. <laughs> but I tell you this because it is a funny face and it's a funny story, but I'm learning very quickly how she's learned how to play to an audience, whether it's me or you guys or anybody else around her. See, we all do this. And it might look different, and I hope it does. <laughs> it might look different for all of us, but we all do this same kind of action and it is the same selfish behavior that we learned as young children. And we still seek these little pockets of power. Because that's what this is. Like, I affirm her and she's just like, okay, I got his attention. Now, do I want to give her attention? Absolutely. Like, I love spending time with her. But not in the way that's forceful. <laughs> you see, we seek these pockets of power even at the expense of others. 
and approval from others feeds our appetite for self-exaltation and it diminishes our desire to seek first God and his kingdom. When that's what we're feeding off of, one another, it's going to turn our sights away from what we were first called to as believers. So this next chapter that we're looking at, Acts 12, settles on this idea. So we're going to read it together. Um, Some might think this is my way of killing time, and it is. But we'll read this together. Verse 1, chapter 12. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. And he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. During the festival of unleavened bread, after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. And when Herod was about to bring him out for trial that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. And while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and he said, Quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. And as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to to answer. And she recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. And they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. And then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the, pe- angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. And after winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. And on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of God and not of a man. At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. And after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. So Justin and Ross have shared over the last several weeks as we've looked through the book of Acts, this pattern that Acts somewhat subtly displays. And that pattern 
uh, excuse me, is this issue that the church faces, that the church continues to face, whether it's internal or external. And last week, when Ross spoke on the acceptance of Gentiles and other nations into the Christian faith, this was an internal issue. Peter has this vision, and he says, don't call, God tells him, don't call what's unclean what I have made clean. And so this is kind of an internal church struggle to finally accept these other people, these Gentiles, into the, into the faith. And here is no exception. Uh, we look at this story of Peter and James, uh, and here we have this external issue that's happening. The first of the apostles to be killed for the sake of Christ, James, is put to death. He's not the first to die for the sake of Christ, but he is the first of the, of the, the, the church that's being led by these, by these men, these uh, 12 apostles. Um, and it's a blaring reminder that the church will be persecuted, that it's a promise that has been made. But in the midst of this, a character emerges, not long, unlike others from our history, that feeds his desire for power in every possible way. And here we begin to talk about King Herod. Now this is King Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who is the man who killed all the children trying to kill Jesus. Um, now ultimately he failed, but not without murdering countless others in the process. But Herod Agrippa, his grandson, he was raised as the rest of them in his line uh, and educated by the Roman people in Rome. And then he was used as a pawn king in Judea. And then they were placed throughout the land so that Rome could still have somewhat of a far reach hold on the known world at the time. And for Herod, he knows that in order for him to be successful, he must find favor from the people of Judea and favor from Rome as well. His political ideology is all over the map because he's trying to please both sides. Otherwise, he's going to be removed from that position. So to boil it down in the simplest terms is he's a people pleaser or a politician. <laughs> The moment he finds a way to appease the crowd, he feels empowered and continues to feed off of it. And we see this immediately in the beginning of the passage when he says that he proceeded to arrest Peter too because he sees that the Jews are happy about it. Now, I want to clarify, as I stated before, the moment he finds a way to appease the crowd... Herod's a politician and power hungry. He's seeking constant approval. And notice in verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, what better thing next but to then grab Peter? Like, that was, that was his initial draw. He, I, I don't think he really cares too much about the Jews. Like, he's kind of, sort of, tied with the Jews. You know, they have some mutual respect for him a little bit. But he's also this, this Roman citizen as well. I mean, there's a tension there between him and the Jews. But if he can make them happy and make the Romans happy at the same time, like he's winning. And to the Jews, from their perspective, like Jesus was this false idol that he was representing himself as being lifted up as God, and he wasn't. And so Herod's like, okay, I'll play off of that, and I don't want anybody else to play God at all. I want to be God. So I'll, I'll feed this drive, and I'll grab Peter, the leader of the church. 
So Herod takes this seeking approval another step by mercifully recognizing the Jews' festival week and decides to wait until the Jews are done recognizing the Passover, right? This is a merciful response because, uh, you know, he's wanting to respect their traditions and their ways. And I don't really think he's that benevolent. The passage doesn't say, but I think that we can safely assume that Herod wants the people's attention. We already see that he's craving it. And Peter is to be the spectacle for that, uh, for that attention, as well as himself. But Herod to be a point of praise, and Herod, excuse me, is going to be the point of praise for the people at the expense of Peter. This guy is good at what he does. Really, he is. And here, Luke contrasts, whether intentional or not, in verse 5, the power of the state, that Peter was kept in prison, and the power of the church, that the church was praying fervently. There's the, there's the balance, the, or, or the imbalance, however, however you were to look at it. To his perspective, to Herod's perspective, it was a huge imbalance. They're not going to attack. They're not going to try to have some kind of coup. Like, they're just going to pray and stay over there, the Christians, and I've got Peter. Like, it's kind of an easy situation, really. So these events are pretty heavy blows to the church. It's been about 10 years since Jesus' resurrection and ascension, which is pretty crazy to think about. You know, we just kind of hit these chapters, boom, 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 week to week. But it's been almost a decade, or somewhere in there. And already one of the apostles are gone, as well as others. We already talked about Stephen and a few others. And the one whom Jesus entrusted the beginning of his church to start is imprisoned. And in a state of persecution like this, everyone feels the effects of Peter's imprisonment and James's death. And if they didn't, they probably wouldn't be on their knees praying fervently, continuously, day and night for that week of time or four or five days, however, however, whenever time he arrested Peter during the festival, we don't know. But as we read further in verse 6, Herod is just about to bring Peter out for his trial. You know, there's, it's not really a trial, right? You just slam the gavel down and, okay, you're, you're going to be um, uh, killed. And a man like Herod, with all his immediate power over Peter and his outcome, feels very much at peace. As I said before, there wasn't really a, a fight, like a physical fight going on. But there was a spiritual battle happening in the midst of that. Killing James was easy. He's not the one with his hands, excuse me, he apprehended Peter without a problem. And the Jews are with him in this. So he's not the one, Herod is not the one with his hands in chains. And in fact, he probably has been sleeping great. Now this is kind of a funny topic that we get to in this uh, night before Peter's supposed to be killed. Herod's sleeping peacefully, but who else is sleeping? In that same verse, we read a sense of Herod's state of being, but we also read the same thing about Peter. It seems that Peter is also at peace. He's sleeping, and pretty soundly. 
because the angel that appears to him strikes him on the side to wake him up. <laughs> Talk about a rude awakening. Just <laughs> get up. Now, this isn't really uncharacteristic of Peter. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus' death, he also fell asleep. <laughs> and Jesus comes, he's like, you're not going to stay up with me for one hour? Uh, so maybe he's just a real sleepy guy. Uh, and he and uh, P- Peter and I, we have a lot in common in that area. After 11.30, I'm done. But even this strike from the angel, though, he's not fully awake yet. Like, he's that sound asleep. And the angel communicates to him everything that he needs to do as if he were a child. He says, get up, get dressed, put on your shoes, put your coat, and follow me. This is the exact conversation I have with my almost two-year-old nearly every day. You know, it's like, you ready to go? Okay, go grab your boots. Boots, go grab your coat, jacket. You know, time to go, ready, okay. And Peter even thinks he's dreaming. He doesn't believe this is happening. Another thing that is common for Peter, as we looked at last week, when he had the vision of animals, like he's, he's like, oh, it's got to be another vision. Like this is out of this world what's happening to me. Peter's just a hungry, sleepy guy. But once he comes to his senses, he's freed. He's liberated. But even though this is what the church had been praying for, they themselves don't believe it either. Either, either. Rhoda does, though. And it's another picture we see multiple times uh, through the New Testament. Uh, these uh, people who are looked at in a lowly position, whether they're servants or women, they get the message immediately, understand, and others, the, the disciples, the men, the people in a higher position, they don't believe them. Like, oh, you're crazy. But her immediate response shows her faith and joy in the power of God. So much so so that she forgets all about Peter at the door and she runs off. And after arguing more or less with the people inside, they finally go and check and they're totally shocked. Wow, I guess this prayer thing actually worked. (laughs) Beyond their amazement, it's interesting that Peter instructs them to go and tell James. This is a different James, not the James at the beginning. We're pretty positive this is James, Jesus' brother. Uh, The first James that died was James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, You guys might have already known that. I didn't know that. Um, So uh, he tells them to go instruct James and the other brothers about what just happened. Now, Peter could have just told them himself, I would imagine, right? But I think it's safe for us to say also that Peter is going to lay low for a while. Yes, persecution is promised, but it's not like we're supposed to go and seek it out, you know? Let's just jump in the middle and get our head cut off. No, like he's, he's grateful for God saving him. He's not just going to give himself away in that, in that sense. So Peter decides to withdraw, and in fact, we don't receive much information further about Peter until we actually get to his letters later. Peter kind of disappears from the book of Acts, and it just says that he goes to another place. Uh, 
So he tells them to inform the leaders of the church on his behalf, uh, and I believe as a form of encouragement. I have no doubt he would want to tell them himself, but he wants to make sure that they know because they all know about James. So they also should hear about God's continual saving grace. But if Peter had not been freed, would that put into question God's faithfulness? That's a good question for us to kind of chew on a little bit. Because was God faithful to James, who died? And we can say yes, but to go further, Jesus foretold of James's death and promised him that he would die for his sake way back in Matthew 20. James and John, they approach Jesus and they ask him, they say, uh, can we, will you, when, when you are in your glory, can we sit at your left and right hand? And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking me. And they're still just kind of blinking. I think we know what we're asking you. And he says, can you drink the same cup that I'm to drink? They're like, yeah, we can. Whether they knew exactly what they meant or not, they, they did speak out in faith saying, yeah, we can do it. And he says, yeah, you're gonna. You will drink the same cup. Now, to sit on my right and left hand, that's not for me to decide. <laughs> they didn't say, oh, darn, never mind, I'm not going to do it. They still said, that's okay. We will still follow you. And each of them eventually drink the same cup. Each and every one of them, whether it's early on or later. In some ways, you could say James got off easy. Because as you read forward, John goes through some pretty heinous situations before he eventually you know, dies. And yet, whether through death or miraculous sign, the church is empowered. Whoever tries to take, to, to take a stand against God, they end up losing. But that doesn't stop us from trying. And I say us because we might not think we're sometimes against God, but we need to be checking ourselves constantly with that question. And this is an embarrassing moment for Herod. Herod, who is sleeping in peace as well, wakes to a confused and fearful group of soldiers. And it was mutually understood at this time, if a prisoner was misplaced or escaped under your watch, that prisoner's, puni that prisoner's punishment now becomes your own, the person who is in charge. So immediately their mind goes to, I'm about to be killed unless I find this guy. There's 16 of them, so there's plenty. But the area of Jerusalem is pretty large, and we have no idea where Peter goes. And it's possible maybe he didn't even tell the people, just so that everyone could, could be ignorant of this fact. So the guards know exactly what's about to happen. So you can be certain that when it says Herod searched, that those guards searched as if it was their last day on earth, because it was. Herod is publicly humiliated by Peter's escape. So he abuses his power, and, and, and he instills fear instead, killing all 16 of the guards. That's a pretty huge, huge cost. 
This is another comparable action to what we do. We shift the blame. We try to point the finger of judgment at whoever we can put the fall on. Because otherwise, that's, that weight is on us. We don't want to take that responsibility. It's like if I didn't have these 16 incompetent men, if there were 16 of me, it would be fine. We, we say that all the time, whether it's in sports, in work, in anything. If there were at least 16 of myself, it would have been perfect. This is another comparable action to what we do. So Herod retreats to the administrative capital of Caesarea. Uh, it's not Jerusalem. Caesarea is the more administrative capital because it is a port city. So that's where a lot of the work is done. Um, and it doesn't seem the Jews are really unhappy with them necessarily. But it doesn't say they're happy either. Now what we are told is that Herod isn't happy with another group. Tyre and Sidon are presenting themselves to Herod because he is really ticked off with them. Why? We don't know. But they all come down to Caesarea to meet with him to try to appeal to his better nature. Uh, and we're told back in Acts 11, at the very, very end, uh, there's a prophecy that is made by Agabus, who we actually read about one other time. Um, but this prophecy that he shares is that there is going to be a great famine across the Roman world. And this, in, in this chapter, we're experiencing it. It doesn't explicitly say it, but based on timelines or whatever, um, uh, that it's about smack dab right in this middle, middle time period. And wouldn't you know it, but it just so happens that Judea, where Herod's appointed to rule, is the grain capital of the Roman world. They're very rich in grain. And so in this stage of Herod's reign, he has a lot of power. Because he's making the rules right now. Because he's the one that's still kind of uh, producing food. And everybody else, including Rome, who is struggling immensely at this time, they're dependent on him. And another thing we also read about in the end of chapter 11 is the, uh, the disciples who are in Antioch, north of Jerusalem at this time, actually send funds down to the people in Jerusalem. They're preparing for this famine. And the funds, the purpose of the funds is because he's going to start price gouging everybody. Because now this is a desired material. It already was, but now more so than ever. And everybody is chomping at the bit almost literally, to try to get a piece of this because everybody is struggling. So we read Tyre and Sidon are here to appeal to his better nature because they are the ones, or because Herod is the one who provides their food supply. And Herod knows this. So they are still doing all right. Um, and are doing even better with how much they are charging people for the grain. This is Herod and his people. Uh, Rome is struggling, and this is um, now the state in which Herod decides, I'm going to take advantage of this to the full extent that I am able. So he believes that he has the power, and to an extent, as we said before, he does. 
This is what he wants. This is what he craves. And we clearly see this even further as we read the proclamation from the people of Tyre and Sidon. Herod dresses for the occasion. The occasion He's prepared, and he gives this long speech. Who knows what he says, but it obviously wasn't important enough to be written down for us anyways. And for them to appeal to his better nature so that he's on their side, their immediate response is, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Whenever we're struggling and in dire straits and we're wanting to make someone happy, what do you do? You grovel, right? Make him feel good, even though I don't believe it, but make him feel good so we can get what we want as well. Everybody is vying for a position of power or survival. Like that's what they're fighting over, to stay alive, to have control. And Herod knew that he was going to receive these accolades. And right there, it was at that moment that Herod made a choice in his silence. Am I a man or am I a God or am I God? I am a God. If we presuppose a little bit further, that also is declaring him to be immortal. And in verse 23, it answers this question in an instant, that God strikes him down and displays who has the true power. We make this decision every single day. Who is in control? Who are we glorifying? That passage from, that verse from Philippians that says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. This should be central to every Christian's life. God is put first. We may not be second and we may not be third. What we do know that to live is to put Christ before us, to live for him, not for ourselves. And often we focus on this second half of the verse that to die is gain, but we are called to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And yes, even in our death, even in the moment, the hour of our death, not to withdraw from that promise. If it means that we die for it, we're to celebrate that suffering. We're to celebrate that cost. And we read about this in the beginning of the book of Acts when the apostles were first uh, faced with their, with their suffering. And they rejoice in their flogging afterwards, you know, slapping each other on the back. Ah, yes, I'm excited. <laughs> we got to suffer for the cause of Christ. That is to live for Christ. And finally, in verse 24, but the word of God spread and multiplied. And this is the promise that he gives to them, or the instructions that he gives to them, to go into Judea, into Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Matthew 10, Mark 8. Luke 9, John 12, all repeating the same thing that Jesus said. 
And I can't help but think of Acts 5 in this situation when we read about Gamaliel's comment. And though he may have also been kind of playing more of a political game with the Pharisees and Sadducees, it was still a wise statement when he said that if this message is of man, it will fail like others. If it is not, if it is of God, nothing we can do is going to overthrow it. And even in the midst of this suffering, even in the midst of James's death, even with Peter's imprisonment and, and his liberation, the word of God is still spreading and multiplying. And there is no more humbling experience for us or any of those who are against glorifying God than when you think you've won and you've lost. And of course, I couldn't help but put a video in as a substitute teacher this morning. But like at the finish line, when we think we actually have the ultimate power and someone comes up right behind us and says, no, you're not the one with power. And we're, we think like we've, <laughs> like we've fooled ourselves to think that we're in control. Where is our hope? Where is our trust? Who or what are you glorifying in your day to day? Because this decision we get to face all the time in the little things. We're to cry out to God in the hour of weakness and in the hour of our strength. Because that's who we should be attributing our strength to. And so I'd like to close uh, with Psalm 3. I'll have it up here on the screen. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help from him in, for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you recognizing that you are the sovereign God above all things. And often, we don't actually attribute that claim to you. Often we put ourselves there, whether we know it or not. So we confess that to you, Father, knowing that we often are making this mistake, not glorifying you with our actions and the things that we say and do. So we ask you, Father, that you would give us the awareness of ourselves to recognize when we are making that choice between ourselves and you. We ask you that you would uh, give us a heart that is humble, a heart that is not looking to uh, achieve great power because we know only any power, good power, comes from you. And that's not because of our own strength. 
And so we ask, Father, all these things in your Son's name. Amen.